This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. This year has gone by so quickly. So much has happened. I mean, I have already completely reconstructed the plumbing in my house. Luckily, not myself. I had help. And you know, with everything going on in life, sometimes it's important to slow down. Take a minute to reflect and make adjustments for the rest of the year ahead. And if you need a little help with that, therapy is an excellent option. I have loved therapy so much in part because of the coping mechanisms it's given me. It's not just a place to share my feelings about my life or what's going on. I've learned ways to address my own mental habits so that I can handle what I'm doing even better. I've learned that self-care is not selfish, and it's really made a big difference in my life. If you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, and all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get started. Plus, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So take a moment for yourself. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash conspiracy. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. On August 17th, 1987, Rudolf Hess, former deputy Fuhrer to Adolf Hitler, was found dead from asphyxiation in a reading room on the grounds of Spandau, where he had been serving a life sentence since 1947. After Germany's defeat in World War II, Spandau became home to all the high-ranking Nazis who were sentenced at the Nuremberg trials. Hess outlived them all, even the ones who completed shorter sentences or were released for health reasons. At the time of his death, Hess had been the only prisoner at Spandau for over 20 years. Prison officials allegedly found an electrical cord strung around a window latch and tied to Hess's neck. In a joint statement issued by the US, UK, Soviet Union, and France, his death was ruled a suicide. But did Hess really commit suicide? Many people, including his own son, believe he was actually murdered by the British Secret Intelligence Service. Others believe it wasn't actually Rudolf Hess who served out that life sentence in Spandau at all. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated. Absolutely. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events 
in search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you are listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of Parcast's other shows wherever you listen to podcasts. Today, we'll tell the official story of the life and death of Rudolf Hess, the deputy Fuhrer in Adolf Hitler's Germany. Next week, we'll explore two conspiracy theories surrounding Rudolf Hess's death and their implications about key events in his life. As far as Rudolf Hess is remembered, it's for his 1941 peace-seeking mission to Scotland, a solo flight he allegedly attempted without the permission of his boss, Adolf Hitler. As soon as he touched down in Scotland, he was arrested as a prisoner of war. He spent the rest of his life in prison for his war crimes. That's the official story, at least. But to understand what led Hess to that infamous flight to Scotland, we have to understand his life from the beginning. Rudolf Hess was born in 1894 in Alexandria, Egypt, to German parents who owned a successful export business. His father, Fritz, hoped Rudolf would someday take over the venture. The family lived in a villa on the Mediterranean coast and frequently visited their summer home in Germany. When he grew up, Hess went to Switzerland to study business. After a year, he decided not to come back to Egypt and join the family enterprise. Instead, he enlisted in the German army at the outbreak of World War I in 1914. Hess excelled as an infantryman and was awarded the Iron Cross second class for bravery in action. Eventually, a serious chest wound caused him to be declared unfit for infantry service. However, Hess was not ready to give up his military career. Hess enrolled to be trained as a pilot in the Imperial Flying Corps. He reached the rank of lieutenant before being relieved of duty in December 1918, shortly after the war ended. He never saw action as an aviator in World War I, but the skill he developed as a pilot would prove crucial later in his life. After Germany's humiliating defeat in World War I, the nation was in turmoil. Germany's considerable financial obligations to the victorious allies, along with a nosedive in the value of its currency, fed the growing political instability. Left and right-wing groups were battling for control of Germany, often through bloody street violence. Searching for a way to occupy himself in Germany's ruined economy, Hess enrolled as a student at the University of Munich. He developed a close relationship with one of his instructors, Professor Karl Haushofer, who is considered to have fathered the field of geopolitics, or the study of geography's effect on politics and international relations. 
Haushofer promoted a doctrine known as Lebensraum, or living space, which espoused the idea that Germany's struggle was due to the need for more territory and natural resources. Lebensraum would later be used to justify Germany's invasion of its neighbors. Haushofer had a profound influence on Hess and is widely considered to be instrumental in Hess's involvement in politics. In 1920, at 26 years old, Hess entered a Munich beer hall and attended his first meeting of the still brand new National Socialist German Workers, or Nazi Party. It sure is strange to imagine the Nazi Party as a grassroots movement meeting in a beer hall. Absolutely, but it wouldn't be a grassroots movement for very long. Its rising star was none other than 31-year-old Adolf Hitler, the party's seventh member. Hess joined on July 1st, 1920, becoming the party's 16th member. Like so many others, Hess was spellbound by Hitler's energy and charisma and became a vocal advocate for both the party's doctrines and for Hitler himself. Within a year, Hess had become one of Hitler's closest confidants. He assumed the role of recruiting students into the Sturmabteilung, or SA, the party's own paramilitary organization. The SA, which claimed several million members at its peak, was the predecessor to the even more brutal Schutzstaffel, or SS, in which Hess also held a senior position. Things started to get serious in 1923, when Hess and Hitler led about 2,000 SA members in a march on Munich city center. It was an attempt to forcefully overthrow the Bavarian state government, and by extension, they hoped, the entire national regime. The attempt failed, but four police officers and 16 Nazi party members were killed in the ensuing gun battle. Well, that move got Hess and Hitler both thrown into Landsberg prison. Luckily for them, the prison was run by Nazi sympathizers who made their stay comfortable, even allowing Hess visits from his old professor, Karl Haushofer. During their time at Landsberg, Hess and Hitler collaborated on Hitler's infamous memoir, Mein Kampf. Most people know that Mein Kampf contains messages of violent anti-Semitism, but lesser known is the fact that it also portrays cooperation with Britain as key to Germany's survival and success. This fact would become instrumental in Hess's political decisions moving forward. Both men were released from Landsberg on parole in December 1924, and Hess soon became Hitler's personal secretary. For the next several years, he served Hitler unquestioningly and without public recognition, as the Nazi party relentlessly campaigned for support. Meanwhile, Hess continued to pursue his interest in aviation. When Charles Lindbergh won fame as the first person to fly nonstop across the Atlantic in 1927, Hess's resolve to become a renowned aviator was permanently galvanized. By crossing the Atlantic in the opposite direction as Lindbergh, from east to west, against the prevailing winds, Hess hoped he could outdo the celebrated American pilot. Hess committed himself to that goal for almost a year, even soliciting industrial sponsorship for his trip. Unfortunately for Hess, he was never able to get enough money together to attempt the flight. But Hess never lost his passion for flying, even after he got married. 
Hess's wedding to Ilza Prohl took place in December 1927, with both Karl Haushofer and Adolf Hitler acting as witnesses. Hess was a devoted family man, and he worked hard to insulate his wife from politics. She was only seen with him in public during social occasions, such as concerts and theater performances. And unlike the majority of top Nazi leaders, Hess didn't use his authority to accumulate huge amounts of wealth. He lived with his family in a relatively modest house in Munich, and the only conspicuous purchase he made was a nice Mercedes, which he loved to drive fast. Well, that need for speed didn't stop on the ground. Hess acquired his first aircraft in the summer of 1930, a BFW M23B. It was given to him by Volkischer Beobachter, the Nazi party newspaper. The paper had its name painted on the fuselage, and as a way of combining his passion for flying with his passion for politics, Hess would do low-altitude flybys to disrupt rival political meetings. In one particularly obnoxious incident, Hess circled above an outdoor meeting of the leftist Republican Party for two hours, drowning out the speaker. He was issued a summons by the police for that one. As a result of the elections that same year, the Nazi party became the number two party in the Reichstag, the national legislative body. Two years later, Hitler made Hess political central commissioner of the party and delegate to the Reichstag. By this time, the relationship between Hess and Hitler was so strong that Hess was positioned to become the second most powerful man in Germany once the Nazi party finally took over the country. That happened fairly quickly. Hitler became chancellor in January 1933, and just four months later, he appointed Hess deputy chancellor with an unambiguous decree that read, quote, I appoint party member Rudolf Hess to be my deputy and bestow on him plenary powers to take decisions in my name on all matters affecting the leadership of the party, end quote. Uh, by the way, plenary power means absolute power with no checks. Which is exactly the type of power the Reichstag gave Hitler two months later. The Enabling Act of 1933 allowed Hitler to enact any law he wanted without approval from the legislature. That kind of power can never lead anywhere good. Absolutely not. When we come back, we'll explore Hess's journey into the outbreak of World War II and the events that led to his decision to undertake his fateful peace mission to Scotland without Hitler's permission. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? 
Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost, built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. And now, back to the story. Just seven months after the Enabling Act gave Hitler unilateral legislative power over Germany, Hitler gave his deputy, Rudolf Hess, even more power as well. Hess was put in charge of the departments of press, reconstruction, finance, law, Germans living abroad, education, building, technical matters, health, race, art and literature, and not insignificantly, foreign affairs. Sounds like Hitler thought pretty highly of this guy. That would be an understatement. Hitler referred to Hess as his closest advisor. And according to the British ambassador to Germany, Sir Neville Henderson, Hitler seemed to regard Hess as his adopted son. In April 1933, Hess helped implement a nationwide boycott of Jewish businesses, marking the beginning of the Nazi regime's systematic persecution of Jewish people. Hess is considered to have had a less extreme attitude toward Jewish people than Hitler did, but he certainly didn't make any serious attempt to stop Hitler's anti-Semitic activities. Definitely not. However, Hess's mentor from the University of Munich, Karl Haushofer, married a half-Jewish woman, which meant their two sons, Albrecht and Heinz, were one-quarter Jewish. Hess protected them by issuing letters exempting the Haushofer family from anti-Semitic laws. At the same time, Hess's office helped draft the Nuremberg Laws, which prohibited marriage between Jewish and Aryan Germans and deprived Jewish Germans of their citizenship rights. That makes it even more strange that Hess not only helped the Jewish Albrecht Haushofer escape persecution, but the two men were actually close friends. Albrecht, a well-traveled academic who was very critical of the Nazi party, became Hess's most trusted advisor on Britain. Albrecht and Hess's complicated friendship probably got even more complicated in August 1934, when the president of Germany died and left Hitler as his successor. During the Nuremberg rally that year, which was the Nazi party's annual propaganda event, Hess famously shouted to the massive crowd, quote, the party is Hitler, but Hitler is Germany and Germany is also Hitler. Heil Hitler, Sieg Heil, unquote. If the man had a sense of nuance, he sure knew how to turn it off. You can say that again. By this time, Germany was on a hopeless slide into full dictatorship, and Hess was leading the charge. Hess was a prolific public speaker, constantly speaking at rallies, even having many of his speeches published. He spoke in the same spirited way that Hitler did, and always on the same general topics. Rebuilding the German military, the importance of absolute loyalty to Hitler and the party, and the danger posed by communists and Jewish people. As involved in politics as Hess was during the Nazi regime, his passion for aviation was never neglected. In 1934, Hess won Germany's first national air race, which took a perilous route around Zugspitze Mountain, the highest peak in Germany. He was incredibly proud of this. 
But after this victory, Hitler decided that flying around giant mountains was too dangerous an activity for someone so important, and he forbade Hess from flying. This was the first crack in Hess's loyalty to Hitler. Despite Hitler's orders, Hess entered the same race the following year and placed sixth out of 29. He also won a prize from BFW, the manufacturer of his aircraft, recognizing him for a notable achievement in one of their company's planes. In 1936, Hess performed some death-defying aerobatics in a Messerschmitt BF-108 Typhoon, not knowing that doing so was prohibited in that model, since it had a propensity to crash during such complicated maneuvers. In the same year Hess accidentally stunt-flew the Messerschmitt, Hitler joined Italian dictator Benito Mussolini in creating the Axis of Germany and Italy, and signed an anti-communist agreement with Japan. As Germany descended deeper into the throes of brutal anti-Semitism, armed conflict with other European powers started to seem inevitable. Hitler's policies were becoming more and more extreme, and the world was taking notice. This period saw the birth of the SS, a new paramilitary organization that used intimidation and murder to enforce the Fuhrer's policies. Hess was made a general in the SS, put in charge of what was essentially a group of terrorists. On the night of November 9th, 1938, riotous violence erupted across Germany. The police, on orders from Hitler, arrested and beat Jewish citizens while their homes and businesses were ransacked and torched. The evening would eventually be known as the Night of the Broken Glass because of the large number of broken windows lining the streets. Hess, whom we mentioned was not as extreme of an anti-Semite as Hitler, was upset by the riots and ordered all the provincial governors to immediately stop the anti-Jewish riots. He also asked Hitler to end the, quote, demonstrations. Once again, Hess was hardly a strong advocate for Jewish Germans, but the man best known for his devotion to Hitler was showing some signs of disloyalty. It is surprising to hear that a top Nazi leader asked Hitler to dial it back. I wonder if he was experiencing a sense of split loyalty between Hitler and the Haushofer family. As much as Hess admired Hitler, he had to have had a soft spot for the family of the mentor who exposed him to his political ideology in the first place. By this time, Germany had garnered an international reputation for being hateful and uncivilized. But inside Germany, Hess was enjoying his personal peak. He was extremely popular amongst the German public. Because of his complete and steadfast loyalty to Hitler, he was held up as a model citizen that all Germans should emulate. He loved the fame. But the days of Hess's limelight bliss were numbered. On September 1st, 1939, Germany invaded Poland. The United Kingdom issued an ultimatum demanding that Germany withdraw its troops or the British would join the war on behalf of its ally. Hitler refused the ultimatum on the morning of September 3rd. The UK, France, Australia, and New Zealand declared war on Germany, and the Second World War began. It wasn't long before Hess and Hitler's relationship started to erode. In Hitler's address to the nation on the day Germany invaded Poland, he made the surprise announcement that Field Marshal Hermann Goering, the commander-in-chief of the German Air Force, would be his successor in the case that he died. 
Hess was relegated to second in line. Hess took another hit when, always eager to fly, he asked Hitler if he could join the Air Force. Hitler flatly refused and officially revoked Hess's permission to fly at all for as long as the war lasted. Hess negotiated the ban on his flying down to a single year, but his relationship with the Fuhrer would never recover. As Hess's status declined with Hitler and the Nazi party, he began to plan a clandestine peace mission to Britain, perhaps with the hope of reclaiming his stature as Hitler's top man. It would make sense that Hess thought he could impress Hitler by negotiating peace with Britain. Hitler had made several public attempts, both before and after the invasion of Poland, to create an understanding with Britain. He reasoned that Britain and Germany should be united against the rising Soviet threat, not fighting amongst themselves. That argument didn't fly with Winston Churchill. Hitler's final appeal to Churchill happened during a July 1940 speech to the German legislature. It was packaged with a threat to invade Britain if they didn't side with Germany. There was no reply from the British, and Germany's attack on the United Kingdom became an inevitability. But Hess thought he might be the one to secure peace. Hess needed to find a contact in Britain who had enough influence and an open enough mind to negotiate peace terms that would be acceptable to both Hitler and Winston Churchill. As we mentioned earlier, Albrecht Haushofer was Hess's authority on British affairs, so he asked him for suggestions. From Albrecht's contacts, Hess finally settled on Douglas Douglas Hamilton, the Duke of Hamilton. And yes, his name and title really did have two Douglases and two Hamiltons. Albrecht had been friendly with Douglas Douglas Hamilton before the war, and like Hess, the Duke of Hamilton was an accomplished pilot. He thought they would have some common ground that would lend itself to negotiation. Knowing little about the intricacies of British politics, Hess also falsely believed that Hamilton was a member of the party that opposed Winston Churchill. In September 1940, Albrecht Haushofer sent a letter to the Duke of Hamilton, suggesting he meet with Hess in Lisbon, Portugal. The letter was intercepted by British intelligence and wasn't shown to Hamilton until the following March. No reply was ever received. Not to be dissuaded, Hess decided to fly to Scotland anyway and pay Hamilton what he thought would be a surprise visit. Hess visited various factories that were assembling the latest German warplanes. His requests to try out their planes were all denied by the chief test pilots, who knew that endangering the life of Hitler's deputy would be a grave mistake. Finally, Hess went to his friend Willy Messerschmitt, the aircraft designer who produced the BF-109, the most prolific German fighter plane during World War II, and the BF-108, which Hess had performed death-defying stunts in, Despite Hitler's interdiction, Hess was in luck. Messerschmitt agreed to have his chief test pilot train him in the BF-110, which had a second seat that Hess could observe from before taking the controls on his own. It was probably more than luck that Messerschmitt helped Hess out. In 1932, Hess had stopped the city of Augsburg from seizing Messerschmitt's factory to use as a tram car depot, so you might say that Messerschmitt owed him one. The team at Messerschmitt's factory was enamored to have the deputy Fuhrer take such an interest in the aircraft, and they happily complied with his request to make modifications to the plane. 
The most important modification was the addition of two 900-liter drop fuel tanks, which gave the aircraft enough range to reach Dungavell House in Scotland, where the Duke of Hamilton lived. Hess also had the oxygen tanks meant for the back seat rerouted to the pilot seat, so he would have twice the oxygen supply for his extended solo flight. This factory, incidentally, would also be the site of Hess's final public appearance. He gave a National Labor Day speech on Hitler's behalf, praising the facility as a model factory just nine days before his flight. In preparation for the flight, Hess packed some personal items that give us some insight into his mindset at the time. Most interestingly, a litany of medicines and homeopathic remedies, including a sterilized hypodermic syringe. Hess was a known hypochondriac. Yet he didn't bring a single change of underwear, which could indicate that he was expecting extremely warm hospitality at Dungable House. On the morning of May 10th, 1941, Hess spent an unusually large amount of time with his three-and-a-half-year-old son, Wolf, possibly afraid that he might not come back from his journey alive. He took the toddler for a walk along the River Izar and later to the Hellebrun Zoo. This was the last time Wolf would ever see his father as a free man. Hess told his wife, Ilza, that he was just going to Berlin and that he would be back by Monday evening at the latest. He rushed out of their house before she could question him any further. At 5.45 that evening, Hess lifted off from Augsburg-Haunstetten airfield in his Messerschmitt BF-100, embarking on the mission that would cement his dismal fate. After the break, we'll explore Hess's dangerous flight to Scotland, his capture and imprisonment, and the official story of his death in Spandau Prison. And now, back to the story. Before he took off for Scotland on May 10th, 1941, Rudolf Hess left a message for Hitler, informing him of his plan to negotiate peace with Britain. Predictably, Hitler was furious. He was afraid that Germany's allies might think Hess had been sent on an official mission to negotiate with Britain behind their backs. Hess's friends and relatives were rounded up and questioned. Many of them were arrested, although notably his wife Ilsa was spared after her initial questioning. Albrecht Haushofer wasn't so lucky. He was brought to Hitler's home by the secret police and forced to spill everything he knew about Hess and his mission. Afterward, he was detained for three months. Hitler realized it was to Germany's advantage to break the news about the mission before Hess was discovered in Britain. If the public heard it from British sources first, Germany would appear weak. Hitler authorized an official statement claiming that Hess was mentally ill and had most likely crashed his plane on his way to Great Britain. He also revoked all of Hess's official titles, kicked him out of the Nazi party, and banished him from Germany, going so far as to order him shot on sight if he ever returned. Needless to say, Hess's close relationship with Hitler was irrevocably destroyed. Meanwhile, in Scotland, Hess was having some trouble finding the Duke of Hamilton's residence at Dungavell House. He ended up flying by without recognizing it. Once it got dark, Hess realized he was running out of fuel and decided to bail. 
He climbed to about 6,000 feet, jumped out of the plane, and parachuted to the ground, about 12 miles from Dungavel House. The impact from the fall knocked Hess unconscious. When he awoke, a man who lived nearby helped him into his house, gave him some water, and of course, notified the police. Hess was quickly arrested. The Duke of Hamilton agreed to see Hess the following day, but contrary to Hess's assumptions, Douglas Douglas Hamilton had no sympathy for the Nazi cause, and he was disinclined to understand Hess's perspective. It's important to note here that one of the conspiracy theories we'll explore in next week's episode claims that it was not Hess at all who flew to Scotland, but an imposter. The Duke of Hamilton would have refuted this theory. One of his key impressions from this encounter was that the prisoner was definitely the actual Rudolf Hess. The conversation was difficult. Hess spoke fluent English, but he had trouble understanding Douglas Hamilton's accent, so much so that the Duke suggested Hess come back later with an interpreter. Beyond that, Hess's proposition of peace between Britain and Germany seemed ridiculous to Douglas Hamilton. He reasoned that even if the two countries were to make peace, they would be at war again within two years. Hess requested that Douglas Hamilton ask the king to release him, since he had come to Scotland unarmed and of his own volition. That never happened. As soon as Hess's identity was confirmed by British authorities, he was regarded as a high-value prisoner of war. Winston Churchill personally ordered that Hess be treated with dignity, so he was kept comfortable but under close supervision. Hess would never see the Duke of Hamilton again, but he did write him a number of letters, none of which were ever delivered. In one letter dated just nine days after Hess left Germany, he told Hamilton that he had assured Hitler he would not commit suicide under any circumstances. So if he died, Germany would assume the British had murdered him. Sounds like he was more than a bit nervous. Must have been starting to register that his mission was a failure. It sure seems that way. He also could have been trying to convince himself that Germany would still get some value out of his mission if he did commit suicide. On June 16, 1941, Hess wrote suicide letters to his wife, his son, and Hitler, all of which played up the significance of his death for the German cause. Then he jumped over a staircase railing, but only broke his leg. It makes sense that a prisoner of war would attempt suicide after failing such an important mission and being captured by the enemy. I wouldn't be surprised if Hess held on to that yearning for meaning in his mission, even after the war had ended. Patriotism was definitely a theme in Hess's second suicide attempt, too. In 1945, while still a POW, he stabbed himself in the chest with a bread knife, again sustaining only minor injuries, this time, he said it was because it was all over for Germany. Since Hess had access to the newspaper, The Times, a London-based newspaper, he would have known that Germany was losing the war and he was unlikely to ever return to his home country. And if he ever did, it would be a far different place from the Nazi Germany he left. That estrangement from his country was solidified during the 1945 to 1946 Nuremberg trials Hess was found guilty of crimes against peace and sentenced to life imprisonment at Spandau Allied War Crimes Prison in West Berlin. Seven Nuremberg trial defendants were sentenced to prison time. Three were given life sentences. 
of those three, Hess would live the longest. In the early days, conditions at Spandau were harsh. Guards destroyed any creative work the prisoners undertook. The prisoners were not even allowed to speak to one another. Spandau prisoners were allowed 30 minutes of visitation per month, but Hess never allowed anyone except his lawyer to visit until 1969. Not even his wife Ilza or son Wolf, though he did communicate with his family through letters. As Hess languished in prison, his last remaining friends died outside its walls. Albrecht Haushofer, who had been his connection to the Duke of Hamilton, was assassinated by the SS in April 1945. His father, Karl Haushofer, the mentor who had first exposed Hess to nationalist ideology, committed suicide the next year. And of course, Hess's hero, Adolf Hitler, committed suicide on April 30th, 1945. Knowing how much Hess idolized both Hitler and Karl Haushofer, it doesn't seem that far-fetched to assume their suicides could have pushed Hess himself to attempt suicide once again. If that were the case, he sure took a long time to decide. His next suicide attempt wasn't until 32 years later, in 1977, when the 83-year-old tried to take his own life by cutting his wrists with a knife. However, there were many other pressures that may have induced Hess to take his own life at that time. He must have been profoundly lonely in Spandau as, one by one, his fellow inmates died or were released. In 1966, Hess became Spandau's lone resident. Even Winston Churchill thought it was excessive to confine Hess for so long. He believed in the benevolent intentions of Hess's flight to Scotland and felt that the deputy Fuhrer must have suffered from mental illness. After his third suicide attempt in 1977, Hess was allowed to move freely within his cell block and to have his own daily routine. He had two cooks of his own who would prepare whatever meal he wanted. He was provided with newspapers and TV, the heat was adjusted to whatever temperature he liked, and wall-to-wall carpeting was installed in his cell. The list goes on. He was given a gardening plot, tailored clothing, a record player so he could listen to his beloved classical music, and even a film projector to watch home movies of his grandchildren. Sounds like pretty good living. For a prisoner, at least. Hess still suffered certain indignities. Aside from the obvious fact that he couldn't leave Spandau, his mail was censored and limited to just one letter per week to and from his family. Any other incoming mail was shredded. Finally, on August 17, 1987, 46 years after Hess's conviction and over 20 years after Hess's last co-inmates were released, the world media reported that the 93-year-old Rudolf Hess had died. According to the official report from the Allied powers, which came a week later, Hess committed suicide on August 17th by tying an extension cord around his neck and hanging himself from a window latch. He was rushed to a British military hospital where attempts to revive him failed. He was pronounced dead at 4.10 p.m. Also, according to the official report, a suicide note addressed to Hess's family was discovered in his pocket, which a British document expert confirmed was written by Hess. The report further claimed that a full autopsy, supervised by representatives from all four Allied powers, confirmed that Hess had died from asphyxia. But not everyone is buying the official report. 
Next week, we'll discuss two conspiracy theories regarding how and whether Rudolf Hess died in Spandau prison. Conspiracy theory number one, Rudolf Hess didn't commit suicide. He was murdered by the British government who were afraid that Hess held wartime secrets that could seriously humiliate the UK were he ever released. The UK, France, and United States had long held that they would agree to release Hess if only the Soviets would get on board. With the Soviet Union liberalizing under Gorbachev in the late 80s, it seemed increasingly likely it would happen. It's not hard to imagine any government, even a democratic one, committing murder to preserve state secrets. But it's hard to imagine what dangerous international secrets a prisoner who'd been locked up since World War II could have possibly known. Maybe the British didn't murder Hess in prison at all. According to conspiracy theory number two, it wasn't Hess who flew to Scotland and served a life sentence in Spandau. It was an imposter. The real Hess was murdered as a free man, either before or after his double was captured. Why would an imposter spend the rest of his life in prison without ever mentioning his innocence? Well, it sure is a mystery. And we'll be back next week to explore both of these conspiracy theories and search for the truth. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Jeff Fiesel and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 